Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. The race is on for a vaccine against COVID-19. Around the world, there are already 70 official candidate vaccines in development, and the real total may be twice that number. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. Today's show is on the global efforts to develop and manufacture a vaccine for the novel coronavirus. Trials on animals have begun in Australia. In fact, the two that we are trialling now were really the first two off the block. And once a vaccine is found, how can it be distributed fairly? It is, of course, understandable that governments whose main role is to protect their citizens are thinking about their own countries. But of course, if you want the best product and the best success, you have to think global. Vaccines have been used to help people beat viruses for well over a century. Now scientists and laboratories around the world are striving to find a vaccine that will produce an immunity against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. This week, the Director General of the World Health Organization, or WHO, stressed the importance of finding a vaccine. Our global connectedness means the risk of reintroduction and resurgence of the disease will continue. Ultimately, the development and delivery of a safe and effective vaccine will be needed to fully interrupt transmission. And in a rare show of commercial solidarity, two pharmaceutical giants and rivals, GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi, joined forces. Emma Walmsley, GSK's chief executive, noted that it is an unprecedented collaboration. Our aim is to start trials for this candidate vaccine in the second half of this year, and if successful, have it available in the second half of 2021. This would be a significantly faster timeline than for normal vaccine development, and teams from both companies are starting work on it urgently. But they are just two of many companies around the world that are scrambling to trial potential vaccines. There are, at last count, many, many dozens of firms and academics who are claiming to be working on vaccines or actually working on vaccines. Natasha Loder is our health policy editor. In terms of who is furthest along, that is also surprisingly hard to say as well. We've heard a lot about these mRNA vaccines, which, you know, is a very novel form of vaccine making where you inject a piece of messenger RNA that codes for a bit of the virus and the body will mount an immune response to that. These vaccines are quite easy and quick to make. But the thing is, is that it's such novel technology that we've never actually had a vaccine approved for use in humans. And so we're really in the dark. And so when people talk about companies like Moderna in America and CureVac 
in Germany being kind of at the head of the pack, perhaps, you do have to sort of remember that the technology they're using is perhaps not uh, so well understood. What are the other kinds of vaccines? A lot of these groups are working on an older style of vaccines. Either they're taking a whole vaccine, which is part of the virus, and deactivating it in some way, or a most common approach is something called a recombinant vaccine. And that's where you take a harmless virus and you put uh, a gene of interest inside, say, the spike protein of the virus. And then you, you inject that into people. That spike protein is manufactured in the body and then the immune system says, ha, this is something foreign, we must mount antibody defense against it. And some people will also use just a, it's called a subunit vaccine, where you would just give people the protein itself, the um, spike protein perhaps from the virus. Two of the vaccine types you mentioned are currently in clinical trials in Australia. The first comprehensive preclinical trial to move to the animal testing stage. My name is uh, Professor Trevor Drew. I'm the director of the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness. We are probably one of the only high secure facilities in the Southern Hemisphere. We are able to work with uh, very high level pathogens very safely. You've begun two animal trials on potential vaccines, one from Oxford University and one from Innovio Pharma in the United States. What's happening? So what we're doing is we have received these uh, two vaccines, uh, one from the UK and one from America. And we have uh, previously developed an animal model using the ferret as our model. What we are doing is trialing the vaccine to see how it defends against the progression of the infection in our ferrets uh, over a two-week period. Now, why are you doing that? What do you hope to learn? The purpose of an animal trial is really just to understand exactly how the uh, virus is affecting the animal in the first place, to actually define in quite some detail the progression of the disease. And then when we vaccinate the animal, we can then examine the progression of the infection in the vaccinated animal and compare it with what we've seen in an unvaccinated animal. And this will allow us to quite finely define the level of protection protection that's afforded by the vaccine in that model. And why did you choose a ferret? The uh, reason we chose a ferret was because we knew from a lot of our previous work with lots of other diseases, respiratory diseases of animals, that there were a lot of other diseases that are very similar to SARS in, in terms of this and SARS type 2 in terms of the damage they cause to the lungs. They target the same cells on the lining of the lung. And this is because there is a particular protein on the surface and it goes by the name of ACE2. And ACE2 of ferrets is actually very, very similar to the ACE2 of humans. So we knew from other work that it was likely that ferrets would be a good model and uh, fortunately we were correct. And now what type of vaccine is this? How would it work? So the two vaccines that we are trialling are two very different approaches to the challenge of vaccination. The first vaccine, which is the Oxford University vaccine, is actually based on a defective virus, which is not a coronavirus. It's a different type of virus called an adenovirus. And this adenovirus is defective, so it, it can begin the infection in human cells 
cells, but it can't replicate itself. What they have done is they have actually inserted into the genome of this defective virus some of the genes from coronavirus such that the key proteins are expressed when the adenovirus starts to replicate, but it produces these uh, coronavirus proteins, but then stops. But this is very stimulating to the immune system. And what about the other vaccine? The second vaccine that we are trialling from Inovio is a very different type of vaccine and it's an entirely new approach. It actually inserts the, a piece of the genome of the virus, but in a form that our bodies can recognise and start to produce the protein. So it's a DNA vaccine that actually commands our cells to make some of this viral protein, but it's only the protein, it's not the whole virus. So how are the vaccine candidates identified? These vaccine candidates were identified not directly by us, but by the funders of our work, who are the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI as we call them. So CEPI had already asked us to set up this pipeline, actually even before COVID-19 emerged as a disease. When COVID-19 emerged, we were already partly ready, which is why we're now in such a, uh, an advanced stage of the development of a vaccine. So what CEPI had done was they had sponsored a number of different uh, groups to develop vaccines. And in fact, the two that we are trialing now were really the first two off the block. And it's a fascinating story as to why they were so quick. It was simply because both of those particular types of vaccine don't need the virus. All they need is the genetic code of the virus. And Chinese scientists had published that in early January, so they were very quickly able to just simply download the sequence off the internet and start making their own vaccines just from that genetic sequence. Explain that to me a little bit more. What do you mean that you don't need the virus, you just need the genetic code of the virus? These particular vaccines are very advanced in that they are able to generate proteins which are encoded by the genetic material in the virus. They are able to actually generate those proteins by simply understanding and knowing the genetic code of the, of the virus and they can translate that into amino acids and create proteins synthetically in their own laboratories. And when do you expect to have some initial results? We started the first vaccination of the ferrets in uh, late March, and we are waiting till about the third week of April to then either challenge them or another group we are going to give a booster dose. So we will have our first results, uh, we hope, by the end of May and uh, final results by the end of June, and we hope to be able to provide a full dossier of our evaluations to CEPI probably sometime around the middle of July. Now, if the vaccines are effective in the ferrets, what happens then? So under normal circumstances of vaccine development, we would expect to do these animal trials, and this would be called preclinical, and then it would go to clinical trials. And this means that the vaccines would be trialled in human subjects once we had demonstrated that these vaccines were safe and that there was some level of efficacy in our animal model. 
However, it has been quite interesting with the development of these vaccines that they have actually started with both of these vaccines. They have already started the first phase of clinical trials. So there are three different phases of clinical trial normally carried out. Phase one is a small cohort of people who would receive the vaccine, but there is no challenge involved and they would normally be in a, an environment where there was no chance of meeting the virus. So this particular phase one would be concentrating solely on looking at the safety of the vaccine in a human subject. Phase two would be among a cohort of people for whom the vaccine was given and there was a likelihood of them becoming naturally exposed to the virus. And then finally, phase three would be the final deployment amongst a, a much larger group, uh, but closer monitoring. Next, after the break, we ask, once scientists find a successful vaccine, how can they ensure it's distributed fairly? The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments, and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places that there are that you can glue it up. On the economics... The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled. And on the politics of COVID-19. Some worst case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome back to Babbage. If researchers are successful in finding a vaccine for COVID-19, the next big question will be, how can it be made available to billions around the world? The World Health Organization has stressed the importance of cooperation among nations. But there is trouble. This week, during a White House briefing, President Trump said America would suspend its contributions to the WHO. Today, I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. The move has been met with intense criticism. The editor-in-chief of the medical journal The Lancet, Richard Horton, called it an appalling betrayal of global solidarity. Natasha, what needs to be done to overcome national interests, especially in light of President Trump's comments when it comes to finding a vaccine? I think when it comes to China and America, I don't think you're going to solve the problem of these countries feeling like they need to be 
first with a vaccine or to be a country that produces a lot of vaccine. I think where the really interesting question is, is whether the global community can get together behind some global vaccine candidates and, you know, provide the funding for a global effort. Now, that's about actually developing a vaccine. What about distributing it to 8 billion people around the world? How can we come up with some sort of global solidarity standard around that? It's absolutely true that we've never done anything quite on this scale before. Although, you know, I would say that organizations like UNICEF do vaccinate, you know, 2 billion children. They don't do it all at once, but we do have some systems in place for mass vaccination. This would be pretty much unlike anything we've seen before and would need funding. If I had to guess, I would say this is probably where the Gates Foundation would come in. I would think that other UN agencies like UNICEF and Gavi, the Global Vaccines Alliance, would all get involved and they would form a plan for delivering this vaccine. It's going to be fascinating uh, to see. But I mean, that logistical challenge is perhaps in some ways easier to conceptualise than dealing with a lot of the sort of political noise and fluff that's going on right now. As Natasha mentioned, one of the organizations trying to solve this problem is Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. For 20 years, they have worked to improve access to new and underused vaccines for millions of vulnerable children. Today, the Gavi Alliance is working to make sure a COVID-19 vaccine will be shared widely. Our role is multiple. Of course, the first is to help countries in the developing world be prepared for the onslaught of COVID. So we've reallocated some of our financing so they have quick access to it. Dr. Seth Berkley is the chief executive of Gavi. On the vaccine side, we're helping finance some of the work using our innovative financing mechanisms. We are also beginning to prepare for scale-up and manufacturing, which will be critical to think about ahead of time so that we can have large enough volumes for the world use. And then eventually, of course, we will be preparing countries to be able to roll out vaccine when it is available. And who are you working with? We're working with the global community on this. We're working with groups like CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, the Gates Foundation, um, large manufacturers, small biotech, the World Health Organization, uh, the World Bank, and other partners. The idea here is to try to create a global effort to move this forward in an unprecedented pace. Now, isn't it also the case that we're in a somewhat of a prisoner's dilemma, for so to speak, in game theory, in which countries want to look after their own citizens, and so they think on a very national scale rather than international cooperation. How can we overcome that for the world's poorest countries? Well, first of all, I think this disease shows more directly than anything the importance of thinking globally. This is a disease that appeared somewhere around the wet markets in Wuhan and spread to 180 countries in less than three months. And so if we have large reservoirs of virus anywhere in the world, obviously that can cause a recrudescence of the infection. And so we need to have a global perspective. In terms of the way science works, 
work. Science is global. And uh, what we also need to make sure is that we get the best science anywhere in the world. And that includes not just on the vaccine, but on the manufacturing technology, on adjuvants, which are chemicals put into vaccines to make them um, more immunogenic, on the animal models, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the world operates globally in science. And if one limits oneself to what's in one's nations or companies that are there, you are not going to optimize for the best results. No, I would agree with that. But what we're actually seeing in the world is government stockpiling, medical equipment, and protective gear. So I wonder when a vaccine comes around, are there any steps that we can take so that this spirit of global solidarity sings through rather than self-interest? Well, first of all, we need to keep having that message of the importance of global so that people understand that. It is, of course, understandable that governments whose main role is to protect their citizens are thinking about their own countries. But of course, if you want the best product and the best success, you have to think global. We also have to have these discussions now before there are vaccines. And we need to think about them in terms of the following characteristics. So first of all, you're going to always have a limit to the number of a new product that comes out. Who should get that product? Well, I would argue the first is probably healthcare workers, frontline workers who are at risk of getting infected, but also are at risk of spreading the infection. Then epidemics that are out of control because you otherwise have a reservoir of virus that can move. Then you probably need to think about the elderly and high risk for the most severe outcomes of the disease, and then more broadly. And we have to think about that globally and make sure there's adequate quantities for use throughout the world. Your alliance has called for an international vaccine effort to bring together the different teams. What would this look like in terms of production and the distribution of the new vaccine? Well, what we need to do is make sure that the all of the key stakeholders are represented in some type of task force. And what we need to do is, under the leadership probably of the World Health Organization as the normative body, to make sure that there is a set of standards that everybody can follow. Of course, you don't want to manage the basic science. Basic science is best when it's competitive. There are, right now, are probably 140 150 vaccines that are moving forward, that's great. But we can't take 150 vaccines into large-scale clinical testing and manufacturing. So we're going to need to down-regulate those approaches. And those need to be down-regulated based upon appropriate science, based upon the appropriate animal models, the target product profile. Once you have a smaller number of, of these products, then you can begin to make sure we have adequate manufacturing for whichever of those, and it probably isn't going to be one. Hopefully, it'll be a couple that will win the race to have a vaccine. And of course, you want all of this done as soon as possible. Let's talk about time frame. How fast can the vaccine process be sped up? And when do you expect the world to have a vaccine at a global scale? Well, first of all, obviously, it does depend what we're talking about here. Are we talking about the first vaccine that is shown to be efficacious? Are we talking about the first dose that can be used in an experimental way under an emergency use authorization, the first licensed vaccine, or the first dose that is prepared in large quantity uh, for the world? And so those timelines are going to be different. 
normally vaccine development takes 10 to 15 years. And of course, for some vaccines that are more difficult, even longer, we still don't have a vaccine, for example, against HIV. You know, the general assessment is, is that this vaccine is not going to be as difficult as some other products, but we don't yet know that. And so I think the soonest we can talk about is 18 to 24 months for a vaccine that uh, would be available. Now, if we get an efficacy, if we're really lucky and everything moves smoothly through the whole process, then we may have an efficacy result as soon as 12 months, at which point it is possible to begin to use a vaccine like that under clinical trial protocols with informed consent. That's what we did in Ebola, where we had a vaccine that was shown to be efficacious. It took another two years or so to get that product fully scaled up and licensed. But in that interim phase, we did an advanced purchase agreement, had 300,000 doses available of the experimental vaccine. And that was what was used in the two outbreaks in DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they vaccinated over 300,000 people and were able to control the epidemic. Seth Berkeley thinks it will be about 18 months before a vaccine is available. But does Trevor Drew agree? Under normal circumstances, we would expect this whole uh, clinical phase to last somewhere around two to five years. But in this particular case, because we know that people are already receiving this vaccine in as phase one and possibly phase two clinical trials, that it may well be speeded up. There is a particular challenge with vaccines against SARS that we know about and uh, we anticipate that the same may be true for SARS coronavirus type 2, which is the causative virus of COVID-19. And the problem is that if you stimulate particular arms of the immune system, you can sometimes get more severe disease than if the person wasn't vaccinated. And this was seen with some of the early developed SARS vaccines. So we need to be very alert to that and we will be looking for that very closely in our animal model. And likewise, in the phase one and possibly phase two clinical trials that are underway in the United States and I believe also in the UK, they will also be very alert to this potential problem. If they do see that problem, I suspect that the particular vaccines that do cause this effect will likely not go any further into development, or they may look at them and adapt them and, and change them. But those which do pass these clinical trials will certainly go into fuller production and deployment. And I would anticipate that uh, we will, if we're very, very lucky and there's no problems at all, it could be as early as perhaps the first quarter of next year that vaccine could be available. But if there are problems, it could take another two or three years before we finally latch on to how to stimulate immunity without damaging the host. Natasha, what do you think? What is the timeline for an effective, safe vaccine? You know, the answer to that question really depends on what your expectations are. And if your expectation is to have one dose of vaccine that has been through safety and efficacy trials, and that dose of vaccine goes into Ken QQA, um, when could that be ready? Then the answer might be six to eight months from January. 
I don't agree with the sort of 18-month timeline. I don't think it's going to take 18 months. It might take 18 months to get an approved vaccine. I think we'll get an experimental vaccine sooner that we might be able to test on a broad scale in health workers and stuff like that. In terms of getting something that you could give to a lot of people, the regulators are certainly going to expedite the approval of this vaccine. But, you know, they'll want to see the safety data is there. Natasha Loder, thank you. And our thanks to Trevor Drew and to Seth Berkeley. That's all for this week's Babbage. You can read the full briefing on the race for the coronavirus vaccine in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you're not a subscriber, you can become one. Go to economist.com slash radiooffer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.